Hello, everyone, and welcome to Serious Coin, the podcast where we have rich conversations about wealth. I'm your host, Kelly Willis-Green. Today's episode should put to rest the notion that just because you have money means life is easy. Like everybody else, wealthy people can suffer tragic losses, or they can become seriously ill or struggle with substance abuse, and sometimes all three at once. That is the story of my guest today, Lydia Noor. Over a decade ago, Lydia and her husband, Mike, were living an ideal life. He'd already had one liquidity event and was on to his second venture with a large manufacturing company. And Lydia was a registered dietitian and stay-at-home mom to their three young daughters. They had a beautiful home in an affluent neighborhood and they were traveling the world, living, as she put it, a wonderful, carefree existence. And then tragedy struck. At age 49, Mike died suddenly, and Lydia was left to pick up the pieces of their life, their family, and their financial affairs. And then 18 months later, just as Lydia was getting back on her feet, she faced a life-threatening diagnosis of her own. She talked to me about that time, along with the coping mechanism that she'd been hiding from the world that left her steady by day, unsteady by night. I actually first met Lydia about 10 years ago. We were introduced by our wealth manager. We'd both been newly widowed and we bonded over our loss and our stage of life. And I also remember that both of us had expressed a desire to make meaning out of our loss and to use the experience in a positive way. For Lydia, that has meant finding new purpose as a health and wellness educator and motivational speaker. Through one-to-one coaching, keynotes and workshops, Lydia helps women do what she did find personal growth and fulfillment from living in alignment with your deepest values. It was really special to connect with Lydia through this podcast with both of us recalling that tender time in our lives and realizing how far we've come. In this episode, Lydia and I talk about the financial realities of losing your spouse mid-career, her negotiations with Mike's former business partners, the lifestyle adjustments she had to make, and why, ironically, she says her husband's death led to her own awakening. It's an inspiring story, and I think this episode will be helpful for anybody thinking about their own relationships and their own mortality, and for couples to consider whether your family's income and lifestyle are sustainable if something happened to one of you. I started by asking Lydia about the early entrepreneurial success that changed life for their young family. So when that opportunity came along to become a shareholder in a company, and it went public, that changed our lives dramatically. It's funny, I've heard the term used by other people in my family and I felt a little resentful, but as I'm speaking to you now, it really did feel like a lottery win. Mm -hmm. We were very, very young, just starting a new family. We had one little toddler and we're expecting our second. So it just created all sorts of freedoms for us, you know, in terms of being mortgage-free and me having the opportunity and choice to stay at home and no longer work and living a really nice carefree lifestyle. And then Mike moved on and he was CEO of a manufacturing company and you were living a really great life. You had three girls at this point. Mm -hmm. Tell me about what life was like then. Life was fun. Our family life was a lot of fun. We exposed the girls to travels early on. Like I said, I had the freedom to stay at home. So life was really nice and we were generous. You know, we were generous in sharing the wealth with certain family members and friends who had specific needs because we were in a position to do so. And then the unthinkable happened. And then the unthinkable happened. Lydia, can you tell me what happened? He was traveling all over the States and it was three, four or five days at a time where he'd be away and then back home again for three or four or five days at a time. And I could see the stress 
and the strain that the travels and the time zones were taking on him. And I remember on one specific Sunday afternoon, dropping him off at the airport, and it was a five-day whirlwind trip to China. And I thought, this is insane. I can just see how tired you are. And I said something to him as I was dropping him off. I'm worried about you. And he said, it's a grind, but I love it. He loved the business opportunity and growing this business. And he said, I'll see you on Friday. And I remember as I watched him walk away in my rear view mirror, I just, my heart was so heavy, Kelly, thinking, there he goes on another trip he no longer has the energy for. And three days later, my phone rang at three o'clock in the morning. And I saw the name of his boss on the caller ID. And I thought, oh my gosh, never, ever did I expect to hear the news that I did. I thought that maybe he'd had a heart attack or, you know, something had happened. But when I picked up the phone, I didn't even say hello. I just said, what's going on? And the answer was, we don't know what happened, but Mike is dead. It's a shock. It's just, you know, there's nothing that can prepare us that call? Never. Do you remember what happened next? Yeah. I said, what happened? You know, what were the circumstances that led up to the death? And really nobody had any answers. That wasn't really what mattered at the moment. Somehow I realized very quickly that I was very real to the news and it was three o'clock in the morning and it didn't make sense for me to wake anybody up at that God awful hour with such awful news. So I just sat with it. You know, I crawled over to his side of the bed and I sat with my feelings and the most interesting part of the story for me is that I was really overcome with a lot of gratitude very, very, very quickly. I recognized what we had created in this life together in this wonderful, carefree, beautiful life that we shared and the build up to all of it. And I was just so grateful. And to me, that was a really transformative moment. It may sound a little dramatic so early on, but I always equate it to his passing was my awakening of sorts. And so I knew that I wanted to keep all of the good stuff alive, the memories alive, and maintain all the joy that we experienced as a family as we carried forward, you know, with my daughters. It wasn't necessarily that way all the time, you know, moving forward, it's been a number of years. But yeah, I remember just sitting with the news. And then my ultimate goal was just to celebrate a life well lived, and to be grateful for the 20 plus years that we had shared together, and what we had created. And I think the other thing that I see in you is you're someone who's made meaning of the loss and using that life experience to help others. But in the midst of all this raw emotion and grief, as you're getting over the shock, we're now having to put on our business brains Mm -hmm. and sort out the practicalities, the financials, the estate, and you were better prepared than most. Mike had a will, there was life insurance. You had been CFO of the household finances prior to his death. So you were able to just sort of step into that. And yet it's still a horrendous task to try to manage. What do you remember about that time in those early days when you were beginning to sort through the financial pieces? That was the way I got through it by managing. I created lists of what I needed to get done. You know, what credit cards I needed to cancel, what memberships I needed to address, who I needed to speak with. I was very, very organized. I had a list two pages long of things I had to get done. And I remember people saying to me, you know, you don't have to deal with this, you know, for six months, you don't have to deal with this for a year. But that was the way that I was navigating, you know, those early, early days, just by keeping really, really busy. I had so many offers of help from people to let me do this for you. And let me do that for you. And I thought, no, I need to do this myself, because it's just it's keeping me active. In addition to having three small daughters, you know, my daughters were quite young, when their dad died. So it was just really keeping my brain focused, so that I didn't have to think about, or sit with the raw emotion of it. 
I'm sort of built the same way. And I've often said that like action is soothing and just doing something seems to be a way of coping with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and then of course you've seen and heard me use the expression, you know, sort of a steady by day and steady by night life. You know, I think in the quiet of the evenings, when all of your support systems have, you know, gone back to their own lives and your kids have gone to bed and you're sitting with your own thoughts, that's the really difficult time. I remember thinking if ever I've understood what a broken heart feels like, I now know what a broken heart feels like. It is another cruel reality of losing a spouse that even with a broken heart and one's cognition impaired by shock and grief, there are financial and estate matters to be dealt with. And according to a study by the University of York in the UK, the stress of realizing that you're now managing finances alone can increase and prolong the grieving process. The same study found that women who had previously depended on their partner to look after the finances experienced significantly higher levels of anxiety which should be a reminder to us all to be and stay engaged with the management of our money. In Lydia's case, she had managed the family finances prior to Mike's death and she knew where everything was and what was in place, but there were still a few surprises. And perhaps most difficult of all, just days after Mike's passing, she had to sit down with his business partners to discuss the terms of a financial settlement. I didn't feel in a position of power, Kelly. I remember feeling that I'm just going to listen to what they have to offer me. I had heard some rumors through other people in the company that I was on more of a friendship level with saying, you know, this is an unprecedented package that they're putting together for you. And I thought, well, because this is an unprecedented situation, (laughs) quite frankly. Yeah. So I knew that their offer was generous at the time based on a typical corporate exit plan, you know, number of years of service, et cetera, et cetera. But this was a very unique circumstance. I would say I felt in a position of limited power. I didn't feel I was in a position to push back or negotiate. Obviously, it's been almost 10 years. I look back now and I definitely think I could have asked for things that would have set up my family's future better. Did you feel outmatched? Definitely. 100%. I was sitting in a room full of men, six men. (laughs) And I knew the person who was navigating the narrative, they let me get through the funeral. But I think I was sitting in their offices within four or five days of the funeral. So I was still not in a position to really be thinking, what are my long-term needs? I was thinking more immediate. And I also knew that I had my own personal life insurance money, you know, that I would be investing. So in my mind, I knew I'd be okay. But looking back, I could have been better. Maybe that's the best way to look at it or the best way I can describe it. Was there anything else that came out of left field that you didn't expect as you were dealing with putting together the financial pieces? Oh, goodness, yes. So just prior to his trip to China, we were actually in the process of changing our life insurance policy. We'd had an old 20-year-old policy that our insurance advisor had said is probably not the most ideal. So we were in the process of transitioning between two policies. And we had both been subjected to medicals for the new policy. He had signed off on the old policy while the new policy was in underwriting. And then he died. And there was some question as to whether this new policy would be viable or the old policy. And the only saving grace we had is that I had just paid the minimums, like the payments on the old policy. So that was the premiums. But it took six months, Kelly, it took six months to for the insurance company to decide whether they were going to honor the old policy that he had signed a, a cancellation on. 
because the new policy that was in underwriting actually never passed through because my medical exam didn't pass. I had some issues with my health, which we can talk about later, which I didn't know at the time. So it was just crazy. I was really counting on the life insurance policy and I didn't know if I was going to get it. And I guess there's a silver lining in everything. I got the news on Thanksgiving. Mm. I got a phone call that policy was going to be honored. But waiting those six months, how did you cope through that? I had enough to carry me through. And I guess because of our early days, when my kids sold the company and we had a mortgage-free existence and all of those things, I always looked at that as you know, a big asset that I could unload if I really need to just free up some money. And so I knew my lifestyle might change dramatically. You know, my hope was that it wouldn't and that I could maintain the same consistency for my family that we'd always enjoyed. You mentioned the change in lifestyle. It's very often the case that people do have to make a change. Was there any change for you? Yes and no, probably to the outside world, not so much. But what changed was prior to his passing, we had this, like I said, you know, carefree, fancy, easy lifestyle, but we were able to be very generous because Mike was working and making a very generous income. When he passed away and I no longer had that income, all I had to work with was my life insurance money that I invested. So I had to look at what does this look like for me long term? And so to the outside world, you know, I was still living in the same home and driving the same car and I didn't go back to work right away. So it looked like I was doing quite well. But what I didn't have was that steady stream of income that, you know, we'd had with him when he was alive. So it did change things. And it's made me have to be much more mindful because that money has to last me for the rest of my life. I like that word mindful. And I had the same experience because we were two professional incomes. My husband's income disappeared. I was on my own because we had lived well below our means. I was able to maintain my lifestyle but in a much more careful, intentional, and mindful way. And, you know, the frivolous, I don't feel like cooking tonight, which believe me happened like mostly nightly. (laughs) I had to be more intentional when I went out to dinner or when I traveled more thoughtful about what the budget for travel was. But in that, for me at least, there's actually joy in that because you're much closer to your money and your money decisions when it's just coming in and it's going out. I couldn't agree more with that statement. And when we say mindful and you hit on a very key piece of our life that did change quite dramatically after Mike passed away, we traveled a lot as a family when he was alive and we traveled well. And when he died, you know, I thought, well, travel is an absolute luxury now. So the most important thing is that I can hang on to this house. You know, there's the emotional piece. You always have to factor in, you know, the children and keeping what's familiar to them in place as long as I can. And so I did hold on to that family home until my youngest was finished high school. That was my commitment to them. There are carrying costs to all of that. So the travel, it's just a back burner. It's something that if we can work it out, we'll do. But, you know, so the travels became very minimal and few and far between after he passed away. And that was a big change in our lifestyle. But to your point, you know, I still do travel. And when I do, I'm so grateful for those opportunities because I'm living a different life now. Loss of employment income. Mm -hmm. You took the life insurance proceeds, invested them. That was now your income. And this is something that a lot of people relate to, I think, when they retire. Mm -hmm. Even I've talked to people who will never run out of money. But that first six months to a year, maybe two years of relying on your investment income is very awkward and uncomfortable for a lot of people. Yes. Does that resonate with you? 100%. And I'll tell you why that initial compensation package that I got from his company, I made that work for me for about 
almost two years, a year and a half, two years. So my money, my life insurance money that I invested was just free to grow. And so I always had this thing in my mind, okay, well, maybe if I go back to work and I don't have to touch that money, it'll just keep growing and growing and growing. And I did go back to work at different points in time over the last 10 years, you know, but the compensation I was receiving was nothing near what Mike was making and to sustain my home and my lifestyle, which even though it was less than it was with Mike, I still needed to pull from the investments. And that's always been a, not a sore spot. It took me a while to get over the guilt of that, the panic of that, the worry of that. Am I going to run out of money because I'm drawing too much from that? So there's a lot of emotions that I had to navigate once I started fully living from my investment portfolio. Thank you for sharing that because I think that is something that a lot of people can relate to it. You mentioned guilt. What was the guilt about? Well, the guilt is that to the outside world, it's like, if you're worried about money, then why aren't you working? Fair question. So I'm obviously not that worried, but it's optics. And it's, as I say, we were able to be more generous when he was alive and had a nice income. And so I think there was a little bit of that expectation, even if it wasn't openly vocalized, you just know there are in other indicators that people, they seem that I'm not working and I'm still living in the same home and life seems to be going along the same way then why can't you still be more generous? But life isn't the same. Lydia, what do you know about money now that you didn't know before Mike died? What I know is that I wish we had started investing sooner. When we had that windfall, if you will, that lottery, rather than just buying a home and putting a bunch in the bank and playing and being obviously generous with some people, I wish we'd invested. I wish we were wiser in our investments. It would have set us up in a better position or set me up to be in a better position now, not in a bad position, but yeah, I wish we'd just been wiser. I think we were just young and carefree and we didn't have any advisement. And we looked at life from the point of view of we're in our early thirties and we own a a home in a nice affluent neighborhood. We're great. We're good. (laughs) You know, but there's more to life. Life is long. We're just getting started and there's more to come. And so you think you have this runway, right? I love that expression. Many of these emotions that Lydia described are common to widowed spouses, particularly as they relate to money. Guilt, worry, anxiety, regret, and fear is at the root of a lot of these feelings. And fear goes hand in hand with grief, whether you're dealing with the loss of a spouse or the end of a relationship. And fear can also be rational and irrational. A lot of women that I've known and have interviewed in my work over the years, and I'm talking affluent women, have told me that they worry about losing it all and becoming penniless. Several articles have been written that even people like Katie Couric and Lily Tomlin and Shirley MacLaine have all publicly said they feared the bag lady syndrome, a term that was coined in the 70s to describe this anxiety about going broke and ending up homeless. So what's the antidote? Well, I would suggest it is to do what Lydia has done. Sit with your emotions and reflect on why you are feeling the way you are, Get real about your lifestyle. Are you living within your means? And are you investing your money well? It's my personal bias, but getting professional advice, I think, is a very good idea. In fact, Lydia told me she wishes she'd had the presence of mind to have a professional alongside her in her negotiations with Mike's company. She thinks she could have secured more education funding for her daughters with better representation. As Lydia worked on her grief and her fears, she figured out how to live well and within her means. And then... Just as she was beginning to rebuild her life, she was faced with another major obstacle. I had had some queries with my thyroid. We'd found, I guess, a nodule or a lump or something. I'd gone to the doctor. But by the time I saw a specialist, 
Mike had already passed away. I was going through all the biopsies and trying to figure out what, what this was by myself. And when I got the diagnosis that it was cancer, I got the diagnosis because it was well spread into my lymph nodes along my neck. So it was quite an evolved cancer at that point. And thyroid cancer in and of itself, it's been said, if you're going to get a cancer, that's the one because generally it's contained and it doesn't spread. But because mine had spread all the way into my neck, it was going to be an involved surgery. And it was my first surgery was seven and a half hours on the table. And nine months later, I had to have a second surgery because there was still indication of more cancer. So you know, at that point, it's so interesting because we talk about where we're kind of weaving in between the worries around finances and money, but then there's always the emotional piece that comes back in. And I just remember I was a year and a half into being a widow, but I was already progressed enough in my strength and resilience and how I was doing and, and feeling about, okay, life moving forward and financially and we're okay and all of that. I remember having a conversation, just a moment, you know, after I walked into the surgeon's office when I found out what would be involved. And I said to Mike, I'm not ready to be with you yet. So I knew that I was feeling strong enough at that point to say, okay, I'm going to get through this and we're going to be fine. And I really did take a very, this is not a big deal attitude. And I've said to people since Kelly, you know, it's funny because it probably would have been a much bigger deal had he not passed. But because he had just passed a year and a half before, that was the big news story. So the cancer, I really just swept under the rug. Looking back in hindsight, you shouldn't sweep any big life altering thing under the rug. I, you know, it, it does come back at you in some way, shape, form or another. And another obstacle that you overcame was you started or maybe had been using alcohol to cope. Mm hmm. And we all have our coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Some are healthy, some are unhealthy. You have a lot of healthy coping mechanisms as well. How was alcohol an escape for you? Well, I'm going to go back to what I mentioned earlier about that steady by day and steady by night. So by day, again, because my girls were young, I was driving them everywhere, school, activities, I had my own fitness routine in the early days, those pieces of the life that I had to like reorganize after Mike passed away. So I had a lot to keep me occupied by day, but by night when it was quiet, I was lonely. I was lonely. I think it just filled a really lonely place in me. It became a very habitual thing for me to the point where, you know, I was concerned at times with my relationship with it. How much would you have been drinking? Oh, like a bottle of wine a night. Mm. It devolved, you know, because as the girls got older and started needing me less and they could drive themselves places, then I, I have all the less reason to not open that bottle of wine at four o'clock or, or to open it, you know? So it was something that I was so aware of and so ironic for the way I lived the rest of my life, quite honestly, because as a dietitian for 25 years and an avid fitness enthusiast, I'm really a very healthy person. And it was so contrary. And it really, I wrestled with it mentally a lot because I said, this is that one dark cloud. It's the one thing that's not in alignment with the rest of your life. And in addition to the physical well-being that I enjoyed in my day-to-day -day life, there was this whole epiphany and awakening after Mike died that led me to really do a lot of internal work as well. So the whole alcohol piece just really was so misaligned with all of the other ways in which I lived my life. And I felt like a fraud, to be honest with you, when I would go out and speak to people about, you know, the journey and finding the silver linings and the gratitude, that was all true and real. But I felt like a fraud because I had this other side of my life, which I'm sure anybody listening to this can relate to because you're not a bad person. It's just something we turn to for whatever reason 
but it really is so unproductive and it's just, it's not benefiting you in any way, shape or form when you're using it as a crutch or using it to the degree that I was. So I had to take a long break to prove to myself that I could and just to get a handle and to give my girls a sense of consistency and stability in our home. Was there a moment that you said, okay, enough? I knew for probably two years before I quit drinking that I was going to, and I knew that it wouldn't take a rock bottom moment. I knew that I would literally wake up one day and just say, okay, I'm done. I'm tired of having these conversations with myself. I'm over it. And it truly is exactly how it unfolded. I mean, it was a conversation with a friend and it was just such an easy conversation. And she's a very, very good friend. And I look back, she's a dear friend for saying what she did. We were at her cottage and I made a comment about, you know, just knowing that this was a, the elephant in the room with my kids kind of thing. And she said, if you're really worried about your relationship with your kids, then you got to get your blank, blank, blank together. And I was a little in the moment, just taken aback only because it was bold. But then I realized she's not saying anything that I haven't said to myself hundreds of times over in my head. And then, so I woke up the next morning and I didn't make any grand announcement. I just made the decision I'm done. And it took me about six months to tell her that was that conversation that was the impetus for me making this decision. And she said, Lydia, that was just a conversation though. You were ready to do the work. Had it been a point of dissension with you and your kids? Yeah, because there were times where I definitely overdrank and it just made them really uncomfortable. The beauty of our family is communication has always been paramount with us. It was modeled by the relationship I had with their dad. Mike and I made time for each other and that's why our marriage worked, even though he traveled a lot. Even when the kids were small, we would you know, put them down to a movie and then sit down and have dinner together. Or on a Saturday morning, we'd just close off a room and say, unless somebody's on fire, daddy and I are talking right now. So we always make that time. That was something the girls learned early on, that communication is the key to the success of a relationship. And so that fostered into our relationship. I tell people quite openly, I was on the receiving end of many a difficult conversation, especially through this. And that's okay. I'm so proud of my girls that they have a voice and they feel comfortable enough to use it. All of these life experiences, along with her professional training, led Lydia to a new place, a healthier place, where she's made meaning of her experience in order to help other women, especially those who want to, or maybe through circumstances beyond their control, are forced to forge a new path in their life. So I shifted from my work as a dietitian into primarily being a speaker and a health and wellness coach for women. And the reason I focus on women, Kelly, is because if I can just go back a little bit before Mike passed away, I had, you know, this inner restlessness kind of thing going on with me. It was a stirring inside of me that there was more I was meant to be doing. And I think that probably happens to a lot of people. I joked and called myself a midlife wife, but we get this inner restlessness that there's more we're meant to be doing with our lives. And I would say to Mike at the time, I know there's more for me. I like my work. I like the health aspect of my life. And I like the fact that my work allows me to speak from a stage because I was working in media as a dietitian, but there's a more important message I meant to be speaking. And then of course, went through the whole journey of losing him and this wake up call to really turn inward and focus on my inner well-being as much as, or more so than my outer well-being as I had been doing for so many years with food and fitness and all of that. I just found the takeaways and the learning about myself and really connecting to who I am were so wonderful that they couldn't be kept to myself. I wanted to share that. So I go out and speak about aligning with the things that you value most. You know, living in alignment with the things you value will give you the most out of living. And that's really the whole mantra behind why I go out and speak to people now. It's really just about connecting to your inner essence and living a life that feels authentic and honors who you are. 
there must be a why to taking care of your well-being. Oh my gosh. We always had this saying in our family, do what makes you happy, right? Just honor who you are and do the things that bring you light and joy into your life so that you can show up as the best version of yourself for everybody else. In everything that you do. I think that's the why, right? That is the why. And so with three daughters who are now in their 20s, it's been a really good opportunity for me to share with them and for them to observe just how much self-care really does evolve you as a person and, and make you show up in every aspect of your life strong. As we know, you don't have control over every situation in your life. But I feel based on the journey and the learnings that I've taken away and the work that I've done to really be strong within myself, that there really aren't a lot of obstacles I wouldn't be able to navigate moving forward because my perspective has shifted so much. That's an amazing place to be. You mentioned earlier about that time in your life when you're feeling like, oh, there must be more than wanting more. Do you think that's something that affluence helps to create or where affluence is a factor when you have everything? That is a very good question. And I can only speak from my own experience and probably yes, maybe for a lot of people. And maybe I was one of those people too. It's a bit of boredom. I'm not forced to go out and work just to put food on the table. I have a lot of time to sit with myself and my thoughts and what I want to do. Can you think of a story of a client where you really feel your experience has been brought to bear to help that woman get to a better place? I've been delivering keynotes and people come up to me afterwards and just say, what you said about this or what you said here really resonated for me. And you've made me rethink about the way I'm living my life. Usually the takeaway is that I really need to pay more attention to taking care of myself. Love your story. Love the way that you were able to find the grace and the silver linings through your pain. And I love how you transform that into the self-care that you give to yourself. And it shows up in how you show up positively every day. And that's the takeaway that I get all the time. And people are inspired by it. And that's why I love going out and talking to people about the power and taking care of you. What are your self-care habits that you just absolutely can't live without? Oh my gosh. Well, always have been health and well-being, you know, fitness and food are paramount in my life. Connection. I've always enjoyed connection in my former life in terms of with people, conversating, coaching, but connection to something I can't see, which is inherently within me, which I call my inner essence or my inner spirit is really valuable. So I bring practices into my life that nurture that every single day. Meditation? Yoga, a lot of time in nature. Meditation, like most people, I'm not as good at it as others, but it's a practice. It's a muscle, right? The same way the practice of gratitude is a muscle, right? We just have to work. It's, it's interesting. Something that I have come across in my coaching, people are really afraid to kind of do the inner work and to dig into the muddy, uncomfortable stuff. And I say, you know, treat it as if you're in the gym. We'll push past the point of pain to build, right? Muscle. So you've got to be able to push past the point of pain to be able to get to the other side. From my own firsthand experience of just having done the work, I feel that, yeah, there are muddy waters. There are times you're not going to like yourself very much. There are things you have to face, you know, realities that you may not like, but once you face them, it's so sweet on the other side of the river. That's what I say. It's just like jumping over a pond. Lydia, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your story and talking so openly about really sensitive topics. And I have just one more. And you listen to this podcast, so you know that I like to end it with a few random rapid fire questions about money. So I will ask you, when you were growing up, what did you understand about wealth? Not a lot, because I grew up in a very middle-class family, maybe middle to upper middle-class family. What I did observe is that my parents lived differently from many of their friends. 
they lived within their means, but sort of on the cusp. So they always had the nicer then. So maybe I grew up with a little bit of an example of having the nicer things and wanting that. What would you then say are some of the joys of affluence? Hmm, Peace of mind, choices, experiences. The greatest thing money can give me is after, you know, a sense of stability is the opportunity to have experiences. In our family, that's travel. Is there anything that makes you uncomfortable or you find challenging about affluence? How people view you from the outside. There's always judgment. I think with money comes judgment. And unfortunately, fortunately, I mean, there are circumstances around why I'm in the situation I'm in. So people forget about the emotional piece and say, oh, she seems to be doing fine. She's happy now or she's moved on. But it took a lot to get to this place. So yeah, it's the judgment. What do you want your daughters to understand about money? Don't live beyond your means. And they see that I'm doing that now. And probably they didn't have that same example when their dad was alive because he was very generous. We didn't live beyond our means either, but he was extremely generous in every way possible. I've always been the more responsible one, if you will. You know, I was always paying attention to I'm very, very debt averse. I don't like debt. So, and I never did, even when we were together and he was making a handsome salary. So I just want my daughters to be responsible, enjoy life but don't live beyond your means. Be aware of the disparity in this world in terms of what you have and what so many people don't have. What are you seeing in them so far? Are those habits taking root or are they all different from each other? You know what? They're all three mindful. They definitely like to enjoy experiences, but they're mindful and they're hardworking. They're all three very hardworking girls. So they don't ask for anything from me. And they certainly know that at the end of the day, there will be something, but they don't ask for anything. They're very independent and responsible young ladies. For as long as I've known Lydia, she has radiated the warmth, grace, and positivity that you heard today. And I'm just so grateful that she joined me and talked so openly about the struggles she's faced and how she's overcome them. I also hope that our conversation might inspire listeners to reflect on your own relationships and your own mortality. I know it's not a happy topic, but let's face it, we're all gonna die, And if it happened tomorrow, God forbid, what kind of circumstances would you be leaving for those you love most? Have the conversation with your spouse, your children, your parents, your advisors, whoever you need to, to ensure that those who should know, do know. And if you're part of a couple, I just want to call out the responsibility we all have to be engaged with our money. Delegation is fine. Abdication is not. Whether you're the spouse in charge of managing the financial affairs or not, make sure you have a system in place for continuity and that you're communicating with your spouse about this. Again, I want to thank Lydia Noor for being my guest today. You can hear more from her at her TEDx talks and check out her workshops on discovering you, your own uniqueness. Both are featured on her website, lydianoor.com, L-Y-D-I-A-K-N-O-R-R.com. Thanks again for listening to Serious Coin and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Serious Coin is provided for your general interest only and nothing we discuss should be taken as investment, tax, legal, or other professional advice. Always talk to a licensed professional before you make any financial decisions.